order that God gave that it would reflect his glory and his presence so that when those who would come to the tabernacle, they would be fully aware of God's glory, not in a materialistic way that, wow, this building is so great, but it was known that the only reason the building, the tabernacle was so great is because it was God decreed down to the measurement, down to the very cubit. God raised up this tabernacle as a foothold for his spirit to dwell for his people to come in as they were commanded and be raised up. Now, the crazy thing about the tabernacle is, is that it was broken up into the inner sanctuary and the surrounding courts. And we'll see that here as we dive into Psalm 84. But what's so significant is that only a select few of even the highest priests were allowed into the inner sanctuary. And they would always go in in their garments and their robes with a rope tied to their foot, swinging myrrh and incense. And the reason that the rope was tied to their foot is because it was reported if a priest would go in to the presence of the Lord in their tabernacle with a, with a wrong heart, he would drop dead. And they'd pull him out. So even the people, and pay attention to this, because this is beautiful, and we'll see the beauty even more as we peel back the layers here in this psalm. As descriptive as it is, this context is so vital in us understanding what David is writing to us here about going into the presence of the Lord and how his people did in the tabernacle. Even as the highest priest was only allowed into the inner sanctuary, the, the basic, if you would, believer back then would travel at whatever cost, no matter what their condition, through whatever conditions it took, to even sit in the courts, to sit in the outskirts of this inner sanctuary, just to be in the house of the Lord. So we'll get to see a beautiful comparison between the tabernacle that our former brothers and sisters who are now at home with our Lord used to worship in, used to go to and pine for their spiritual growth, and the tabernacle in which we worship in today in which our spiritual life and growth depends on. So, Father, as we do that this morning, just be with us. As beautiful and descriptive as your psalm is, whether it be through the vocabulary, the language used, whatever way you must, just make somebody think differently this morning about themselves and higher of you, God. Thank you for giving us your word as it is God-breathed, as you've given it to us to shape us and mold us for reproof and instruction and raising us up. Open our eyes, Father, to the beauty of the tabernacle that was and the one that is today. Breathe life into our bones, God. We depend on you and we need you. Let that fall fresh this morning. Let us depend on it as we do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I love the, song, the way the psalm begins here as David writes, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And it's so beautiful to even see the language right off the bat here. As he doesn't just address God as Father or God, but he calls him Lord of hosts, uh, calling us to see and examine hosts being the heavenly hosts of angels, the seraphim that we got to study just a couple weeks ago as Pastor Kyle preached on, that their sole purpose with their six wings and eyes in every inch of their body being to cover up and sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the psalmist key acquisition here. As he's writing to the Lord of hosts, and he continues, my soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Some further context here for us to understand and why many think this psalm can be attributed to David, David is because as he's writing this, it comes from such a place of longing. So when he says, my soul longs, the root definition of that word in its original Greek is that it's a visceral longing for the Lord that every inch of the body, 
would long for the Lord, every inch of our being, so much so that Matthew Henry said it's almost as if the Spirit not ascends but takes a step outside and away from physical being and longs so desperately for the Lord that it gets even an ounce of the sweetness of His Spirit. I had a very opposite understanding of this that was a hidden blessing when I got so burnt this week that my body had a visceral reaction to the aloe Abby tried to force on me. And she would try to rub it on me, and I would literally, like a six-year-old, just shirk away from it, not even knowing what I was doing and hiding from this. So I got a very opposite glimpse as to what the psalmist is saying here, that he longs for the Lord so viscerally that everything down to his spirit and his fibers is pining after the glory of God. But he not only longs for the Lord, his soul faints for the Lord. And it's such an off-the-bat look at how much the psalmist, obviously, again, believing it's David, depended on the presence of the Lord. And what's so beautiful about the rest of this psalm is David is writing this from a place of banishment from the tabernacle. As somebody who's far off in a high castle looking at the very thing he wants but cannot have, if you know anything about the story of David. So he is not only longing, but his soul faints for the courts of the Lord. His heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praises. Even down to the birds of nature, recognizing the glory of God, this beautiful descriptive language that even the swallow, even the most common bird, would build its nest in the corner of the courts of the Lord just to be in His presence. That those within the tabernacle as well would travel, no matter what the cost or circumstance, just to be in the house of the Lord. And there's three things that I want us to take a look at this morning, twofold. So if you're a note taker, this is what you would take down. That all in all, God appointed the foundation of His holy courts, the gathering of His holy assemblies, and the dwelling of His Holy Spirit that God appointed the foundation of His holy courts, the gathering of His holy assemblies, and the dwelling of His Holy Spirit. That we can see it in the very tabernacle that was raised up. He appointed the foundation of His holy courts. The very place in which He would allow His people to come in to His manifest presence and see and experience and feel the glory of the Lord. And it's important to take note here that God's key plan, His plan A from the very beginning, was to establish a place for His established people. That it wasn't through a bait-and-switch gimmick that He sent out court jesters or anybody else to, as He already had, cast miracles, raised up the dead, and healed the sick. But He established a place for the dwelling of His Spirit for the people he established to come and grow and experience his gospel even further. That he placed it in the hearts of his people that their being depended on it. So he established to them their holy courts. We see this in Hebrews 8.5 that will be up on the screen. And it says, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So very clearly, as we discussed, that God instructed Moses to the, to the nth degree of correctness, that the tabernacle was built in such a way as he gave his people the greatest gift he could barring his own son, for them to come in fellowship in his presence. And so many times I think it's important for us to, to recognize this is because I think one of the banes of human existence is the struggles we face and the belief that God isn't present in such. 
that when we come up against even the slightest trial or when plans aren't even going our way, they just look differently than what we expected, we wonder where God is as if it's God's mission to get away from us as if to prove us something. Or we can see even here in the Old Testament psalm that God's key plan was to send His Son as He established His holy foundation for His courts. Even here in the tabernacle, it was God's plan to abide amongst His people, not flee away from them, even though they were sinful. Because, folks, don't get me wrong, even in this tabernacle, it wasn't just those with pure, genuine hearts that were gathering to worship. Much like today, there were those in the tabernacle who showed up and worshiped with the most passion. We could say it was with the hands raised the highest, singing the loudest, seemingly with the most passion they could. That turned out to be the very same pharisaical believers that God scorned. There were those mixed bag of people, those who came to the tabernacle with right mind and heart, that knew their very being hinged on their being there in the presence of the Lord. And then there were those who used that as a pedestal to put themselves up on. There are those of us today, in the same sense, who will come here to check a box. The same with our quiet time, the same with our prayer life, that is done in such a way not that shows our being depends on the Spirit of the Lord, but more so shows our efforts that qualify our being. And how backwards that is, that God, think about it, didn't set up this tabernacle in all its beauty and all its shimmering glory so that its people, His people, could come in and try to justify themselves on top of what God had established for them. In the same sense today, God doesn't call us to add to the foundation of Christ. As a matter of fact, in Revelation, he says anything that's added, whether it be gold, silver, hay, anything that's added to the foundation of Christ that was laid on the cross will be burned away in the coming of the final day, down to its very core. So much like we can see and take note of here in the beauty of the tabernacle, God's plan wasn't for us to come and add something better or add anything at all. It was to come and abide in His presence. We see how the Lord established His holy assemblies in Leviticus 23.36. It'll pop up here on the screen. It says, For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. So God not only establishes the foundation of his holy courts, he establishes how they should happen and their very happenings once his people are there. So that people weren't just coming to the tabernacle to sing a song. People weren't just coming to the tabernacle to hear somebody speak. People were coming to the tabernacle for their day-to-day life as he said, and as we saw in Hebrews, that they served a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things that were to come. This is the very place that people made their burnt offerings, that they came and offered up their finest sacrifice in belief of the Savior that was to come. And it's something we got to dive into on leadership this morning, is that all of our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament, the founders of the foundation of the church, served in their faithfulness of the hope of what was to come. I think the thing that's so beautiful for us today that we take for granted as believers in the 21st century in America is that never in our lives have we served from a foundation of faith of the hope of what is to come. Never. Never in our lives. Our very faith foundation is laid in what has come, what was killed, what was risen, and what is promised, yes, to come again. But we have the benefit of seeing and hearing that, of reading it as it was gathered. See, our Old Testament brothers and sisters that would come to the tabernacle, it was in such a desperate hope that it was almost a reminder to their very soul that whatever it was they were going through, whatever condition they had to go through to get to the tabernacle, whatever it was in their life that was keeping them from the tabernacle, it was a glorious thing to take their best and burn it at the altar. 
It was a glorious thing to sacrifice whatever it would be that they would just be in the presence of the Lord that he established for them to abide in. Whatever it was, even David here as he's banished, he goes on to say later in the psalm, and as we sang, that a day in the courts of the Lord is better than a thousand elsewhere. So God not only established the foundation of his holy courts, he establishes the assemblies of his people. We go on to see that even in the tabernacle, he established the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. In Exodus 33, 20 through 23, it says, But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. This is after God is speaking to Moses as him and his people are saying, God, just show us something. We got to go over this in a Q&A night a while ago, but Moses and his people are saying, God, just show us your presence. If you're real as we know you are, just show us something. And it can sound eerily familiar to the very prayers we may hoist up today in the midst of suffering or even in the midst of goodness of saying, God, thank you. Show me your presence is real or as we were children of saying, as it is a childlike plea, almost saying, God, if, if you want me to pass that test tomorrow, make it rain tonight. Or if I'm supposed to date that girl, as middle school as this sounds, and I'm not saying this came from me, but I'm not saying it didn't. If you want me to date this girl, make that pine cone fall. It was already falling off the tree. These childlike pleas that we can throw up are the same as Moses and his people were, saying, God, if you're real, make yourself known. It almost announces itself as they're already acknowledging God and his realness by praying to him, but asking for even more. And so the context continues as he says, God says, He said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, that rock being Christ. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. It's one of the most beautiful little snippets of Scripture that I think we could all feast on just a little bit more. Of that here is a people who were already delivered, both unto God and away from their hardships, who were already given the promised land, Yet they're asking for more. Does it sound familiar to us as modern day believers who have already been delivered, who are given the promise that we will be brought to fulfillment, but in our day to day, our lives and our prayers may ask for more? But God, rather than scorning them, says and speaks to them of a rock in which he will put them in a cleft of, so that as his glory passes, they will catch but a shadow and a glimpse. And that not only that, but he will cover them with his hand as he passes by, so that they not see his face, lest they die, but they will see his back. What a beautiful depiction that although we ask for what we don't even know we're asking for, much like Moses did here, much like in our prayer lives perhaps, that we ask and plead for more and in a sense disregard the everything that was already done for us on the cross in Christ. The very rock that he's already set our feet up on. The very cleft of that rock that we're gathered in through this life together. What a visual depiction of the life of a believer. That God's glory is this cliffhang and we're all buried as today's Christians and to the side of that mountain, just looking over the edge, but being held by God's hand. That we catch but a glimpse until we're brought home and see fully the glory of the Lord. And see, this is again a huge deal because even in the tabernacle, and please get this, even in their tabernacle, remember there were only a select few allowed to go into the inner, inner sanctuary. But here God is speaking of a promise to all 
his believers, that he would allow his glory to pass by them. And this is where we begin to see the transition of the tabernacle that was then and the tabernacle that is today. We can see in 1 Peter 2.5 that God is still consistent even in the new covenant of Christ and establishing his courts. Much like he already had in the tabernacle that was fully necessary for when it was, he did the very same in Christ and the rock in which he sets us up on. In 1 Peter 2.5, he says to us, You yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Press into this with me. I was so excited to see this in prep that reading about the tabernacle and how he would give specific designs, again, down to the very cubit, to how much silver and how much gold in the four thousands of tons that he's saying here, in the same sense, remember the tabernacle being a beautiful place that was built up for the people to come and worship through sacrifice and song and praise. He's saying to us in 1 Peter, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this is where we can take great riches from a covenant theology that through Christ, we are being built up as the holy stones of today's tabernacle. That we are being built up to be a holy priesthood. There be no more need for an intercessor to enter into the inner sanctuary as Christ accomplished that for us. It makes me think of the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ is pleading unto the point of bleeding. It makes me think of that as being the inner sanctuary before he was put on full display, hanging on his cross on our behalf. And through that sacrifice is what we're being told, we're being built up as a spiritual house. Not only that, but we're being established in the holy assemblies of God. Just as he had in the tabernacle, we can see in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God is still in the business and has established his holy assemblies. Just as the tabernacle was raised up, we are in the same being raised up as a spiritual stone to the living tabernacle of today through the sacrifice of Christ. In the same way, as believers then were given the conduct of how to live, what to eat, what sacrifices to bring, we are given the strict commandment to not forget to gather together to stir one another up unto righteousness. And it's so important not to miss that, as it was the habit of some. Because upon hearing this, you may be hearing me this morning, and this is one of my fears in presenting this, is that I don't want anyone to hear me say, as we're being built up as the spiritual stones, that it's not necessary to still gather as the spiritual body. None of us is greater than the other because all of our stones are being laid at the cornerstone of Christ. And think about it in the form of an architecture, even as you're being built up as a spiritual stone, our students listening on podcasts, our families who aren't here listening on podcasts, even as one is being built up as a spiritual stone, even in building a beautiful palace, a stone does nobody any good, lest itself by sitting off to the side. And sadly today, we can see a lot of people our age, a lot of people college age, high school age, who are just not being shown the importance of the gathering of the local body. When the, one of the most beautiful things in these scriptures from the Psalm to the Hebrews is that the local body is established by God for the dwelling of the local body. The tabernacle was raised up to be filled up by God's people 
primarily by His Spirit for His people to dwell in. We are being built up as spiritual stones encapsulating the Spirit in which God sent to establish His holy assemblies. That's why we must not neglect to meet together. Because here's the thing, Christian. If we forget the cornerstone in which we're being built on, if we forget the importance of gathering together, we cannot encourage one another. And if we cannot encourage one another, we will be quick to forget the capital D day that is drawing near here in the Hebrew. It's talking about the return of Christ. That the tabernacle that was was built up as a house of worship for the dwelling of the Spirit. We, in the same sense today, as the body of Christ, are being built up as a holy priesthood and living stones as a spiritual house for us to come and gather in. For us not to neglect, but to look forward to remembering the Old Testament Christian who by any means necessary was going to be at the tabernacle. It doesn't matter what they were going through. It doesn't matter who in their family was suffering that week. They would pull them alongside with them. But by any means necessary, they would be in the tabernacle. I can tell you from even just being gone for a week, Abby and I had a lot of fun in Mexico, but we missed you guys. Kyle and Jen in the same. We, they miss us. The pars texted us and just let us know they missed us. Guys, the spiritual body that's established here is such a rich thing as it's made to be knit together. We got to talk about this maybe three or so weeks ago. As the body of Christ is raised up as the body of Christ, to act as the body of Christ. From everything to discipleship, to encouragement, to even child care, to raising a child. Everything about the body of Christ is established to function as a body. The right hand doesn't do anything that the left hand doesn't know about. What if we actually live that way? For all of us, if we continue to press in here at the Branch Church Milledgeville, as the students come back home, as the Bridge students here this summer, as even more local families hear about the Branch, it wouldn't just be a building, but if that they came, they would see a body that longs for the spiritual growth of one another. That in love would call to correctness one another when they see one astray. That we wouldn't neglect meeting to one another. And I can tell you this, I was so thankful in prepping, even as we were gone, we had to mute a group text in our phone because our college students were so bent on hanging out every single day and texting about plans and where they would be, who would be there, making sure one another was coming, who was bringing what food, where they were going to eat, could they afford the food they were going to eat at, that they were just blowing up this channel, and it was annoying then. But in hindsight, <laughs> just seeing what a beautiful illustration it was, that it wasn't even just on the Sunday gathering. And here's the beauty and the riches that we get to reap. As the tabernacle that was established and the tabernacle that is established today, that we as living stones gather always continually. That it's not just reserved to a day. And hear me say this, that today being the Lord's day is true. That today is a chance to come together reverently as the body here of Christ, as the local church, and be rejuvenated to go out again through the sacraments of baptism and communion and worship through song and the preaching of God's word, that we get the privilege of unplugging from out there for a little bit and just coming together solely centered on Christ. Because guys, here's the thing for the life of a Christian. Our provision is already given. It already is in Christ. So our recognition of our provision has a lot to do with our perspective. Our provision hinges on our perspective. Because here's the thing. In the days of suffering, in the days where we feel like we're in the desert, in the days that we feel like our faith is dry, it's not that Christ is any less. 
We can't turn back time and make Christ's blood any less efficient. We're simply looking at ourselves. We're looking at the wrong thing. And here's the more beautiful thing to tie this back in. Christ gives his local assembly and his local church today to prevent us from doing that. As a Christian, it is quite feasible for us to, yes, experience sorrow for the rest of our days. Take the life of Paul. Take Job. Those were two of the most joyous brothers we can study. And I can guarantee you they went through some of the deepest, darkest sufferings. Why is that? When in the life of us today, it seems like we just can't get it right, maybe. That something's off kilter. Is it because we're not recognizing the richness of what's going on here in Milledgeville? Of what's going on here, even in the summer? Yes, it's supposed to be the downtime. It's supposed to be whatever. Like we talked about in leadership, this is the perfect time to press in today more than any day to experience the richness of the truth that if you can say you know Christ today, that we are being built up as living stones Accounting for how beautiful the tabernacle that was. Christ is raising up anew today on the cornerstone of Christ. And even so, we can see that God establishes the dwelling of His Holy Spirit for us today. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17, it reads, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you. (laughs) Catch this. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So I'll just say what the Scripture says here. To all of us here this morning, as I said it to myself, no joke in a mirror, is do you not know that you are God's temple? Listen, the very place of peace you may be pining after or hoping for is set up in your bones, being the Spirit. There is no better than than the sacrifice of Christ. He was our all in all. Everything our former brothers and sisters prayed hope for, worship towards, and strived after in faith of what was to come every day in our life has always been what has come and has risen. So do we not know that we are God's temple? God's Spirit dwells in us. And guys, the beautiful thing that leaves us without any excuse to live out courageously the call of the Spirit is that if anybody destroys God's temple, worst case scenario, somebody kills us, God will destroy him. And I want to take a second here because nowhere in Scripture is God passive. Nowhere. As a matter of fact, from the very beginning, he's very intentional about giving his people exactly what they need from Adam to a helper and Eve, from his people to a place to experience the dwelling of his spirit and the tabernacle. For us today, a place to be built up, a foundation in Christ the cornerstone. A place for us to experience His Spirit, our very being. Our place to remind each other of that in a local gathering, and holy assembly, the local church, a great defender, Himself, God. Worst case scenario, somebody destroys us, but guess what? Not in an unrighteous wrath, he returns wrath to those who are wrathful. Our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who are losing their lives even still in Syria as they face persecution. In China, although the church is booming, they're still facing persecution. Guys, the persecutors do not go without justice, much like the believers don't as they're welcomed into eternity with well done, good and faithful servant. Yes, it sounds like a battle cry, and it is immensely encouraging, but like I said, it leaves us with no excuse to not dwell so richly in the Spirit that we're spurred to holiness every single day. Account again 
that the believer would make their way to the tabernacle by any means necessary. It meant that much to them. It was an event that they shaped their lives around. When today church is something that maybe we can fit into the kids' sports schedules. Maybe we can make it. Depends how much we studied the night before. Maybe we'll be there. Maybe we'll be there. Guys, they would make it to the tabernacle as if their life depended on it because it did. And, and even more than that, here's the thing. We don't even have the excuse of not making it to a tabernacle. We are the living stones. But even that doesn't let us off the hook to gather together, to stir one another up. Because guys, why don't we act as if our lives depend on it when they still do? Have any of you ever found yourself in such a season of spiritual dryness and just wondering if you even know God, if God even knows you, if you can even pray to Him, have you ever faced such a heaping of shame that you feel like you can't even go in His throne room of prayer as if He doesn't already know what you're going to ask Him in prayer? Have you ever felt so sinful you can't ask for anything? And we're always faced with the great question of how can we avoid doing this? How can we avoid those dark seasons? How do we get out of them? What's the, what's the hidden secret? What's the trick? Bailey, tell me, how can I do that? Do you know the secret? I'll tell you, yeah, I do. As Scripture reveals it, it's the cornerstone of Christ. It's the command not to forget to gather together and stir one another up unto righteousness. That doesn't discount our suffering. That doesn't discount our dryness. But folks, that makes it a heck of a lot easier to be reminded of our glorious Savior and everything He has done, is doing, and will do. And if you're going to tell me that that doesn't pull you out of a rut, or at least if one of us being so fixated in our perspective on Christ can't let alone pull you out of your own rut, then we're not looking at the same God. The spiritual life of the church today and the spiritual life of every individual believer today hinges on our gathering together to fellowship with the Spirit. We must become so infatuated with our Christ and His church. We must see the beauty in this psalm that He gave His people the most beautiful tabernacle for the dwelling of His Holy Spirit and here is grace that although we are a bunch of chipped, broken pieces of the same jar of clay, we're considered living stones that God is cementing together for a firm foundation on the cornerstone of Christ. We are without excuse, but we're given every praise and every joy. What if our lives overflowed with that and the way that it should? We couldn't help but have awkward conversations. But what if they don't like me after? God never called you to get people to like you. God doesn't give you the firm, true, rock-solid gospel to bait and switch people with. He doesn't give you His Son and Savior to hide and shut up under you like a lampstand that you might let somebody take a peek in after three years of knowing them. We must establish genuine and firm relationships built on our Christ-like love for others. But if it is not with the sole intention of sharing with them the love of Christ that will set them free, we are just in the same heaping dirt over their eternal grave. I know it sounds extreme, and I feel like I always get that rap. But truthfully, I, I don't care. I love you guys enough not to because this is extreme, folks. The work of God is extreme. His Spirit is extreme. His blessings are, the absence of such, are just as extreme. And here's the thing. The harvest is so plentiful out here. Just even looking at the houses on our street, 
even looking at the campus that I know a lot of our students still go to, uh, we're set up on every side to have the greatest joy of our lives. For people who are listening, for students that are looking for a college to go to, this isn't a ploy to get you to come here, but if you want to experience the richest four years of your life, plug into a local church who is seeking to change lives. For families, as I I trust ours can, or at least will be able to, if they are looking for a safe and challenging place to raise their children, that village that it takes, plug into the local church, the living stones that God is establishing on the foundation He even laid for us. It is a firm foundation. For the one who is wondering and even hates God to this point, Consider for a moment that what if God is keeping from you, like he did from Moses and his own people, the very thing that could kill you? That if you got what you were asking for, the freedom that you may think you want, perhaps God is keeping it from you because it could kill you. Just so you could catch a glimpse of the thing that would actually bring you to life. Because here's the beauty of our lives today. Here's the beauty of what it means to be a Christian. Is that we live, we get to hide in that cleft of the rock, guys. We live in the shadow of the risen cornerstone, not a raised up tabernacle. Everything about our lives is hidden with Christ in Christ, and lives through Christ, for Christ, toward Christ. We are so freed up in our bondage of our will to Christ's righteousness that we can truly live and live well and live joyfully. Because as the psalm finishes out, blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, a desolate desert, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God of Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And I hope this is our plea. And if it's not, at least that it could get there, this last part. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Why? For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Blessed are we who trust in him as we go from strength to strength to the mountain of Zion. As we read this, it's such a tendency to think in the Christian life that we're just going to limp our way to the finish line. But believer, That is not the case. Christ is all sufficient, much more sufficient in that sense that the perseverance of his saints and his sustaining of them isn't going to leave us, although broken. Here's here's not a hint, but just here's the track record of the Christian life, right? Although we are still lowly, the perfect spirit is shut up in our bones, We're being made as the living stones, the holy tabernacle today. So our trajectory of life, although in our mind as Satan will creep in and make us think, is we're only starting at the bottom and we reach a plateau of being saved and only go deeper. There is a healthy way to think of this. As Kyle shared last week, a beautiful quote from Vody Bauckham, that we may never forget our history of sin. Because here's the beautiful thing for us, guys. We're not called to forget. God does the forgetting of our sins for us. 
He cast them as far as the east is from the west for him to forget in his record of wrongs against us. But we do not forget. As Vodi said, it's almost like we are taking captive our thoughts of who we were so we can be so appreciative of who Christ is making us. But our trajectory is not down, it's not sideways, it is up, Christian. We may be broken, physically we may limp, but we will be leaping across the finish line of eternity and victory. Even on your darkest day, your finish line is still victory. Even in death, even in beheading of our brothers and sisters who face true persecution, their finish line is victory. So they go from strength to strength. Scripture gives one of my favorite illustrations here that those who are going through the Valley of Baca, I've said this before I even read it here, and it's just such a blessing to see that it aligns with Scripture. Guys, this world, this life, this whole thing is considered a Valley of Baca. There's no mountaintop here. We get highs, we get lows. I just got to experience one of the richest ones and being one with my bride on our wedding day. It was the best day of my life. Truly, truly. And she would agree that in comparison to what we have in store, it is nothing. It's in the same valley of Baca next to the cacti and the hardest days of our lives. This life is a valley. But here's the beautiful thing. And you're like, Bailey, that sounds dry. What if I'm living my best life now? You're not. Your best life is what's to come in eternity. I love this quote from John MacArthur that says, if you are living your best life now, that simply means your eternity that is coming is hell. Why should we want our best now? It's like that kid who peaked in high school. And all he has to look back on is a class ring and a varsity jacket. I had those things. I was an owner of those things. But you can tell Abby, I, just seeing those things, it, I, I just cringe. We don't peak then. We don't peak now. We won't peak in this life. We peak in eternity with Christ when we're brought to fullness. We strive toward that. And the believers in Psalm Know that, as it says, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. And, and catch this, because at first it sounds like they just dig holes, rain fills them up, right? But it says they make them a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. And the richness of this text is that they had such a trust in their Lord for provision that through that, Though it would not be miraculous, but simply the way God allows his nature to work is that as they were in this valley, as they were in this desertous place, they would get on their hands and knees and they would dig deep into the soil. And they would wake the next day and there would be a spring of water. That through the driest time, perhaps the driest situation and place, they would get on their hands and knees out of trust for the Lord and dig deep into the soil, trusting His provision. Not only would they wake up and it be filled with water, but the rains would also cover it with pools. I can't help but think for us that when it feels hard, not only then, but every single day, we're so huge on preaching the gospel to yourself. When you wake, when you sleep, and everywhere in between, what if we treated this life for what it is as a valley until we get home to Christ? What if we recognize the tabernacle that was and the tabernacle that is today on the cornerstone of Christ and every single instance of life is depicted by us on our hands and knees digging deep into the spirit that will well up with Christ. Because the beautiful thing about this illustration is it's what was and it's not just a hypothetical, it's a command. 
Again, God is rich and encouraging to study. But the thing about a psalm like this is now like me, all of you are without excuse after hearing the richness of what is. Those who are listening is that through the Spirit of Christ that is pent up in a believer's bones today, we can and are called to dig deep into the driest soil, knowing that it will be filled up, and even more so, the rains of the Spirit will cover it in our provision. Because guys, as I said, the provision of the Christian life has already come. The provision we ask for on the hard days, everything we ask for when we think we need next, does not match Christ. It can't. My hope and prayer for this is that we would see our provision has come so our wellness of faith, our spiritual health, depends on our perspective. Not in a sort of speak it into existence or your idea, like your ideology defines your reality. We're given both. The reality is we're not home yet. We will be home one day, and Christ will be the one to sustain us. That's a firm truth. We're given a big and holy Savior to fix our eyes on. Our provision being in the perspective that no matter what we go through in this life, we can and are called to fix our eyes on Christ. I don't know if you guys have caught this yet from all of our teachings here, all of our studies, our fams, our anything about us. But it depends and hinges on Scripture. It centers on Christ. And also, I don't know if you've gotten this, no matter where you're at in reading Scripture or where you're at in studying it, but God never gives a command to His people that He won't enable them to fulfill. He would not command us to fix our eyes on Christ if He would not enable us to. And you may be thinking, but I'm a young Christian. It's the first time I've heard anything like this today. Praise be to God because I can follow that up and tell you your prereq for being able to fix your eyes on Christ is God knowing you. As God has known you and saves you unto Himself, you know God. As you know God, you fix your eyes on the one who made that possible. But I don't know how to evangelize. I don't know how to share your story of conversion. Love well as you have been loved. But that makes me nervous. What if they don't like me? I'm not good at it. I'm not a good communicator. I can't even pray out loud. God will not call you to something. He won't enable you to do. Consider the psalmist that's writing this and King David, the man after God's own heart that was a wretch in his morality. Consider the sparrow that has a dwelling place in the courts of the Lord. Would he not even more so provide for his child in here today? Absolutely he would, and he has in his son. Hebrews 10, 11 through 18 gives a beautiful cap to all this. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
The Christian life today has been so contorted, twisted, and turned into making us think and believe that the gospel gives us a foundation to build on. It doesn't. It just said sins and lawless deeds are no more for those who would be sanctified. Where there's forgiveness, as there's every forgiveness in Christ's blood, there is no longer any offering for sin. You can't offer up your best day. I can't offer up my best sermon. I can't offer up my best prayer for my wife, my life, the guys I'm discipling. I can't offer up anything as a substitute for Christ as He was our propitiation for sin. But there's no need because the foundation of the gospel does not give us a foundation to build up on. It gives us a foundation like the valley of Baca to dig deep into and well up the Spirit as it rains down the life of a Christian until we're ushered into eternity held by the hand of God that we would go from the cleft and the mountain face of Christ's righteousness into being fully immersed in the lake at the bottom of the pitfall. Brother and sister, that we would take these truths to heart and not just let this psalm be beautiful and descriptive as it is, but that it would be richly theological and reminding us of the tabernacle that was and the tabernacle that is today through the cornerstone of Christ that is the foundation for us, the living stones of His righteousness that are being held by forgiveness unto our sanctification. May we all remember that we no longer live in the tabernacle that was raised up, but we live in the shadow of the risen cornerstone. And may be our deepest prayer and passion and zeal for the Lord that we would push one another to that standard of excellence for our mighty King. That it would get to such a point, and I want the guys to hear this that are my neighbors because I miss them being my neighbors, and I can't do this because I'm not next to them anymore, but it would get to such a point that if we're going in our day-to-day and we're watching our third hour of Netflix and we ask them if they've had their quiet time, and they can't say that they have, shut the TV off, go sit down and have it together. That if we're gathered as a family, and we want to veg out on Netflix for the third night that week, and neglect family worship, unplug it, turn off the phone, dive deep into the Bible, we're given every providence, we're given every provision in Christ, We are without excuse. Folks, we get to abide. We're called to abide. We're equipped to abide. And Christ will enable us and sustain us to abide to the end, even more so that we would bring others with us when we go to eternity, our home. Amen. Let this be our joy and our hope. It is the heart cry of our life. It is the purpose the Lord has given us. As the living stones in the shadow of the great cornerstone of Christ. Father, we praise You deeply. We give You the utmost thanks that we can. Recognizing the sacrifice that You made, that it was perfect, that it didn't just make a way for new things, it didn't make a way for new offerings, that it ended it all, that you give us a foundation not to build on, but to dig deep into, so that we will again one day see your kingdom raised up. God, thank you that we can even utter your name. Keep us from being like people who would ask for more and neglect that you've already given us everything. God, we thank you for the statue of the tabernacle. God, we thank you for your law as we read that you would write it on our minds that your sacrifice in Christ 
did not do away with the law, but fulfilled it. We thank you for the covenant that was and the covenant of Christ that we live in. Father, thank you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I don't want this to miss us today. So whatever your response need be, let it be that. If you need to gather with a brother, if you need to gather with a sister, if you need to sit in the presence of the Lord, worship in that way.